This is The Guardian. Hello, it's Mike. Today we've got something a little bit different. It's the story of a family tragedy and a court case that could make American history. The Guardian's US Southern Bureau Chief, Oliver Lockland, reports... And a warning before we start, this episode includes references to physical abuse and violence, so listen with care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A few months ago on Good Friday, I went to a small church on the outskirts of Durham, North Carolina. Praise the Lord, saints! I was listening to a preacher called Alex Fields. He's dressed in a sharp blue suit. It's a packed out service. There's multicolored lights filling the room. And when Alex really gets going, the band starts up. The topic is forgiveness, a pretty routine lesson for Good Friday. But Alex has an extraordinary message for his congregation. I tell you on tonight, forgiveness, it is a powerful word. It's a powerful word. But I'm gonna tell you a story My family and I knows what forgiveness is all about. This story began almost seven years ago to the day, in this neighborhood. It was a beautiful spring day. I had gone to the Raleigh Church. My sisters had gone to the Durham Church. We're all excited. We're happy. And my godson had been trying to reach me. Meanwhile... Alex's niece, Brittany, had started getting frantic messages from members of the family. I'm turning on my phone. We're getting back into town where we're getting some signal. And I'm like, messages are like just coming up. He's like, we're at the hospital or something, something like that. And I'm like, whoa. And so they tell me that your brother has been stabbed. I said, oh, my God. They both found out that Alex's brother, Donald Field Sr., had been stabbed to death by his son, Alex's nephew, 24-year-old Donald Fields Jr. That day, June 26, 2016, was the most horrific day that I've had in my life. So I first go by her house and I'm over there and it's a crime scene. I have never been a witness to a crime scene like... There were police and there were cameramen and there was news reporters. Donald Fields Jr. is being held without bond at the Durham County Detention Center. His 54-year-old father later died at the hospital. 
This story of a son killing his father briefly made the local news that day. But the cameras soon moved on. It was just one of 17,000 killings in America that year, which occurred at an average of more than 47 a day. I've been writing about the American justice system for many years now, and in the world's most incarcerated country, it can often feel like the cycle of violence and mass incarceration is unending. What makes this story unique is not the killing itself, but what happened next. A lot of people want to see people locked up, put behind bars, and suffer. And I understand that, but I also understand that is there something else that can be done? In a case as serious as murder, could there be a better option than a long prison sentence? An outcome that would still leave victims' families feeling like justice had been served. It's the case of State v. Donald Wayne Fields Jr., file number 16 CRS 55491, file is already up on the bench. And in a polarised America, where violent crime rates are increasingly politicised, can a team of reformist prosecutors win over the public? If that makes me a target, that makes me a target. I'm a black woman in America. I'm a target anyway. This is a story of faith, family, and forgiveness. From The Guardian, I'm Oliver Lockland. Today in Focus, why prison isn't the only solution in a murder case. On a rainy Saturday, the day after that Good Friday service, I went to meet Alex Fields at his apartment in a retirement community on the outskirts of town. Hi Alex, how are you doing? Thank you so much. Alex knows I'm here to talk about the worst thing that's ever happened to him. The killing of his younger brother Don Senior by his nephew Don Junior. Hello, how are you doing? Well welcome to my humble abode. Thank you very much, it's beautiful. But despite all this, he takes the time to put me at ease. He's retired now, preaching part-time, and speaks with the confidence and intonation of a seasoned pastor. That's me when I was six. My first grade picture. We sit down, and with his insulin machine beeping occasionally in the background, we chat about family. So my parents have ten children. People ask, how in the world could she have done that? Ten kids. Ten kids. But it almost seems like it was just easy. It was effortless to her. I'm sure that it was not. But then my mother instilled in all of us, we must get along. You know, you must love your brother and your sisters. That's how we still are today. We may have disagreements, but at the end of the day, we are a family. The Fields family have had to show extraordinary resilience. Because we grew up during segregation, and those were tough times. Um, I would see the signs that said whites only. I see the signs that said colored only. In Durham, I saw Mm. this, but my parents still held their head high. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Don Senior, because I'd love to know a bit more about him. Okay. 
we had the closest relationship of my younger siblings. I got a good relationship to all of them, but Don was sort of like my son in a way. And I loved that. Even though Alex loved his brother, he could see problems at home. He spoke of Don Jr. witnessing his father's violence during his childhood. That violence in the home went on until Don Jr. was six years old. Then later, Don Sr.'s relationship with his son also became violent, with rows sometimes ending in physical blows. Research shows that those who are victims of violence in youth are far more likely to become perpetrators of violent acts later on. Alex remembered seeing a particularly bad fight at his mother's home. I'm in the kitchen helping my sisters, you know, get food. That's what I do. And I'll go outside and they're fighting. Hmm. And one of my brothers is trying to break them up and stuff. But they're physically fighting like they don't like each other. They are punching each other. They are fighting, sir. Hmm. Like in a, in a boxing match almost. That, that must have been really horrifying to see that. That was horrifying. I said, Don... If this continues the way it is, somebody gonna kill somebody. Because the handwriting is on the wall. I, I just see a storm brewing. Let's talk a bit about that day back in 2016. Okay. That day, June 26, 2016, was the most horrific day that I've had in my life even worse than losing my father because it was so out of the blue and it happened over a television set they had a TV in the living room and Don Jr. wanted to have the TV in his bedroom that he shared with his father so Big Don says no, you can't move the TV. And it led from just a simple conversation of, you, you know, don't move the TV to a fight. It is told to me that little Don had a little thought of a knife, like a pocket knife. And he pulled it out on his dad. And his dad says, so now you want to hurt me? Now you want to kill me? You want to do that to me? And my nephew starts stabbing him. When we finally could get in, it was like seven or eight at night. And we, we got in that house. It was the most horrific scene I've ever seen. Blood on the wall, blood in the carpet. You know, it's just like on TV for real. It was very, very violent, very, very violent. I could not wrap my brains around that. I couldn't fathom how my nephew could kill his father in their crazy relationship that they had. I knew they loved each other. They really, really did. When they weren't fighting, they were like two peas in a pod. And so for this to happen... I, I just, only words could come up with shock. Now, Donald Fields Jr. is expected to make a first appearance in court tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Don right Jr. Now, was arrested the same day. He handed himself in at a nearby gas station where he still had the pocket knife. He was charged with the murder of his father 
and faced a possible sentence of life without parole. The next day, he appeared in court where his family were waiting. Tell me what was going through your mind when you saw him like that. Well, I saw my nephew come through those doors like a criminal in an orange jumpsuit. And he, he didn't look like my nephew. You know, he, he just had this distant look on his face. And he didn't acknowledge any of us. They asked him if he had anything to say, and he said no. And um, they locked him up. At that time, there was so much anger going on in my family. They were really mad with Don. They were really, really mad with him. And that's how it remained for two years. Don Jr. in jail. Pre-trial detention. The familiar cogs of the legal system slowly turning. Durham is a mid-sized city in the centre of North Carolina, a swing state in the US South. It sometimes describes itself as the most progressive city in the region. And when you drive around town, you see sprawling college campuses and towering church steeples dotted around the city. But despite its liberal image, racial disparities run deep, particularly in the justice system. The Durham District Attorney's Office the body responsible for prosecuting crime in the city has seen numerous scandals in recent years, from misconduct allegations to wrongful convictions. And by 2018, the city had cycled through six district attorneys in just 12 years. Most of them people who had spent decades prosecuting crime in the city. But that year, Durham elected a new DA without those traditional credentials. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an absolute honor for me to swear in one of the best progressive district attorneys in the United States of America. Her name is Satana DeBerry, a former defense lawyer and a public housing advocate. So my central messaging was really trying to tell the truth. We all know that the criminal legal system is not fair, it's not just, that it focuses on the most vulnerable people in our community. We over-incarcerate black people, we over-incarcerate poor people, and people know that. That is not news to people. So what we tried to do was really talk honestly about what the criminal justice system looks like what the opportunity for change is. DeBerry is just one of a new wave of prosecutors elected in America who want reform. And like many of her counterparts, one of her flagship pledges was to expand the use of restorative justice in the city's legal system. Broadly, this means the act of resolving crimes by emphasising reconciliation and accountability over punishment, bringing together the perpetrators of harm with victims in discussions known as restorative circles. The process wasn't brand new to the Durham office, but it was in its infancy. The person who used it most was an assistant prosecutor in the office. She's called Kendra Montgomery Blint. The first time I met with the Fields family, they came in, it was, you know, gosh, I can't remember how many people they came, but they came in in a large group. There's a lot of siblings in that family. And they were so traumatized and so hurt and in shock. 
which is not unusual for the first meeting that I have with any family that's lost a loved one to violence. Montgomery Blinn sat down with the Fields family to work out a plea offer to avoid taking the case to a lengthy trial. An estimated 95% of felony offences in the US are resolved this way, and often victims can be involved in that process. So at trial, the result could have been a conviction for first-degree murder, which would have been a mandatory life without the possibility of parole. And how did they respond? The first plea offer that was 20 years minimum, we all worked out together. That's what the family and I sat down and wrote up, and they knew that was what I was offering. I think that the families typically, in that grief, trust us to tell them, here's what's right, here's what's justice, here's what we're going to do in this case, and the Fields family was no different. The Fields family and Montgomery Blinn decided upon a number, a minimum sentence of 20 years for a plea to second-degree murder, meaning a killing committed, quote, utterly without regard for human life, but without premeditation. Don Jr.'s defence lawyers indicated they weren't willing to accept such a harsh sentence. They declined to speak to me for this story. At this point, the case was heading for a long, gruelling trial. But then, it took a critical turn. The real trigger, actually, in this case was when the psychological report came in from the defence. They get their psychological evaluation and they can give it to you if they're going to use it in trial. A number of the siblings came... And I gave them copies of the report to read, and I left. It's said that Don Jr. possibly had some kind of anger problems. It's said that his mental capacity at that time did not match his age. That was a biggie for me and my two sisters. Because he was an adult, he didn't act like an adult and he didn't think like an adult and so I knew that that part was really really true. The DA's office believed this psychological report wouldn't have changed the outcome during the trial and it's important to note here that violent felonies still rarely go through a process like this in Durham but Montgomery Blinn had been thinking for some time that this case could be resolved by restorative justice She bases this assessment on so-called green flags in a case. The first is that victims have to want the process in the first place, and also that the defendant is willing to participate. But there are others too. Turning yourself in is a really good example. You know, making some sort of apology type statement, that's a huge green flag. And so you're just looking for, is there something that, in this case, the traditional criminal justice process would deny? And I saw this case, the green flags were that this family felt that they didn't want to lose Don Jr. as well. I did not want to lose him to the system. I did not want him to be another statistic. And so often they see black men when they go to prison, you know, they throw away the key. They don't rehabilitate them. And I thought that he could be rehabilitated. Yes, he did a horrible crime, but he's not a murderer. And so the Fields family agreed to restorative justice. That meant the formal judicial process was paused. The case was transferred into the community and assigned a facilitator, a pastor called Reverend Annette Love, who works with the group Restorative Justice Durham. 
She was sitting in the same building if they wanted to go ahead. What was going through your head? A lot of things. My mom. How she could forgive people. God. And my relationship with him. And um, how can I stand in the pulpit? And how can I preach for forgiveness? And if I don't forgive my nephew to what he's done. And so when I began to see Don's point of view and how he got to where he is, I said, yes, I can forgive him. I must forgive him and I must help him. They said, yes, we want to know more. And so Reverend Love came in. I was not going to bring her in unless they wanted her to, but they did. And it was immediate, their connection with her. They literally said to her, we've been praying for you, but we didn't know that it was you we were praying for. And that was how the restorative justice process began. I went to meet Reverend Love at the church she works in. We're sitting in a carpeted room on the ground floor. It's the first time she's spoken to a journalist about the Fields case, but far from the first time she's worked with survivors of violent crimes. And talk to me a bit about that first conversation that you had with Don Jr. He's very quiet. He's not very talkative. He did not want to open up to us, yet he agreed with the process. And he agreed with the process because his family wanted to go through it. And, I mean, obviously, when you kind of unpick the details of this crime, this was a violent killing. It was, like, multiple stab wounds during a a fight, basically. Does that act of violence sort of meet with who you thought he was as a person when you were first talking to him? No. I didn't pick that up at all. Mm. And I have seen, trust me, I have been in that courtroom. Mm -hmm. I can see that in you. He needed a sense of love and assurance. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to be an example of the goodness that's going on in the judicial system. It's jacked up. It is. Everybody's not going to be happy. And everybody's not going to be happy with the process. And that's, that's okay. In the U.S., and particularly in the South, restorative justice in cases of violence is rare. Instead, the focus of criminal justice reform in America has often been low-level crimes. But the majority of people in state prisons are there for violence. So advocates say that if real change is to happen, that has to be addressed. But one big thing that makes restorative justice difficult is the time and resources it needs. In the Fields case, the process was made even harder by the pandemic. After that meeting where the family agreed to take part, it took them almost another year before they were ready to meet Don Jr. And the first conversation happened over Zoom. Just talk to me about how you felt the first time you saw him. I knew you were going to ask me that. And I was an emotional wreck. He was an emotional wreck. Because I think I had not seen him three, four years. He was crying. I was crying. And it just brought back all the memories. It just brought back that entire day. What did you say to him? What were the first things he said to him? 
I said, you know, hey, Don, how you doing? It's been a long time. He said, hey, Unc. I said, it's good seeing you. You look good. And then I said, I just want you to know that what you did was horrific. I, you know, your entire family is suffering. And I, it's been three, four years. And, and we are still suffering. So I had to let him know that I was behind him. And um, I think he didn't know how to take that. From this point on, Alex had circle discussions with his nephew and members of Restorative Justice Durham once a month. Don Jr. had also agreed to have regular therapy. Over time, in those sessions, Don Jr. expressed remorse. He was sorry for what he had done. He accepted responsibility for it and acknowledged the harm he had caused. This was an essential part of the process. So for a whole year, I went through this process and I kept seeing him grow each time a little bit more, a little bit time, a little bit more growing until around about the eighth month, we were laughing. We were really, really laughing. We were really, really glad to see each other. And from here, other members of the family began to join. We were just so close, like, so close from, I think, in elementary to like sixth or seventh grade, me and Don Jr. were like really close. I met up with Brittany, one of Don Jr.'s cousins. Brittany's father had been in prison for a long time when she was a child. I was with my mom that night, so the next day, one of my family members, like was knocking on the door and was like, I got some news. I'm like, hit me. I was seven years old, about to eat some breakfast. Like, and we were best friends. And like, that's another thing. That's another thing is like, I feel like I've lost multiple best friends to the system. And when that happened with Don Jr., I was like, here we go again. Advocates for restorative justice say that because American prisons are already so violent, locking people away is essentially meeting violence with more violence. Still, not everyone in the family were behind the process. Alex showed me a letter one of his siblings had written to the presiding judge shortly after the killing. My feelings is this. He, Donald W. Fields Jr., should get the maximum amount of years in federal prison decreed by your court and that he should serve those years without the possibility of parole. That's it. And he stayed, that's been his opinion. That this is still his opinion till today. What does it make you think? You know, it's tough. Because some people are judgmental, even in his own family. My family, they are judgmental. Mm. And so I'm telling him, it's okay if they're judgmental. Those are their feelings. And you deserve still to be a part of this family. You deserve respect. I just wonder in your mind whether there was ever any doubt about whether this was the right thing to do for you. I don't think I had any questions. My only questions were how... Are you? Like, I don't think I had any questions about the moment. Do I wish things would have been Uh different? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. But nothing, no question I can ask can change the fact. And unless we're talking about 
bringing my uncle from the dead, then I just want to know how you are. Like now, 2021, 2022, 2020, how are you? And how can we move forward? By now, the family had been having circle discussions for over a year. And it was time to answer a giant question. One that required the DA's office to get involved again. And so the big question became, does Don Jr. need to remain in custody right now? Or is there work that needs to be done with him transitioning into the community? And they wanted him out now. They felt that there was a lot more work to do, but they had done everything they could possibly do with him in jail. Don Jr. had been in jail for almost six years now. He hadn't been to trial or received a formal sentence. Instead, he'd essentially been held in the county's custody, waiting to find out whether he'd be sent away for murder, potentially facing decades, if not life, in a state prison, far away from his family. It was up to the DA's office. Would they downgrade the charges to allow Don Jr. to actually leave custody? Had the restorative justice process worked? Once again, the Fields family were involved. They wrote up what's called a repair agreement, containing 13 conditions Don Jr. had to meet for his release. Mr. Fields shall not commit any new crimes. Mr. Fields shall reside in transitional housing as agreed upon by the parties. Mr. Fields shall work with Alliance Mental Health. Don Jr.'s original charge of murder was downgraded to one of voluntary manslaughter. But alongside the therapy and continuing the restorative circles with his family, the demands were strict. He had to wear an ankle tag initially. He had to find a job and live in transitional housing. And if he didn't comply, he'd end up with a harsher sentence of up to 10 years. On the 15th of June last year, Don Jr. was allowed to leave jail temporarily on those conditions. Now, he just had to wait to hear the judge's final sentence. Would his freedom be permanent? A week before his final hearing, I finally met Don Jr. It was very brief. He's as shy as everyone said, and he didn't want to be interviewed in depth. It was just days before the sentencing hearing, when a judge would decide whether he could remain out in the community or if he'd failed to comply with the terms and be sent to serve time in prison. And that was the week when Alex shared his family's story with the congregation. My family and I knows what forgiveness is all about. 2016, my nephew killed my brother. And it was horrible, it was horrific. We are working in progress, Amen. most of us, to forgive him. There are some others that are still having a hard time, but that's okay. The district attorney had a change of heart and says, I believe he's worth saving. Do y'all want to participate in a program called Restorative Justice? He did, and I promise you, next Thursday, he will be Coming up, the sentencing hearing, 
Will Don Jr. avoid prison? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. A few days later, on Thursday, I headed to the courtroom for Don Jr.'s final hearing. It was a bright summer's day, and in the wood-panelled room, the public benches were packed with members of the community who'd worked on the case, from police officers to therapists and members of the DA's office. Looking over, I could see District Attorney Sitana DeBerry wearing a silver necklace. On it was the word mercy. Alex arrived to court in a wheelchair. He'd injured his ankle. And behind him, pushing the chair and wearing a white polo shirt, was his nephew, Don Jr. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope everyone's well. Recognize the state. But what was obvious pretty early on was this was a different kind of hearing. We are here for a sentencing, but also a little bit unique for this case that we're here for a celebration. Montgomery Blinn began to tell the story of how the restorative justice program had worked and thanked everyone involved. So I would like to acknowledge the Durham Police Department. I see them seated in the back. They're very excited to stand up. Montgomery Blinn then invited Don Jr.'s mother to stand and speak to the room. Go ahead. Thank you so much for 
allowed me to speak. It has been a very hard eight years. When things happen to our children, they happen to us. And I just want to thank all of you for taking a chance, helping him. I appreciate it. He may have a way now where he didn't have a way before because you all took a chance on him and I just wanted to say thank you. Don Jr. himself was invited to speak, but feeling too shy to speak in front of the court, his lawyer read out a handwritten note. I would like to take this moment to thank restorative justice, the Honorable Judge, my attorneys, for the opportunity to reshape my life and appreciate this chance to continue on the quest of a positive mindset, maturity, dignity, self-love, and self-respect, which reflects hard work, dedication, afforded me re-entry into society. Thank you all. And with that, I think we would simply ask the court to complete the sentencing in this case. The judge then went through the procedurals, acknowledged the six years John had already served, and then the final decision. Hearing a resounding silence, the court in its discretion waives monetary obligations. Thank you so much, Mr. Fields. Thank you. All right. Don Jr. shed a few tears. Once facing decades away, the restorative justice process means he's been held accountable in a different way. He was sentenced to time served, meaning he would not be sent to prison. Don Jr. could now live in the community as a free man. It's a pioneering case one that several experts I've interviewed say has never happened before. It was also the first time I've ever been offered cake in a courtroom. If you'd like to have some cake, as it is a celebration. So. And as everyone started eating, I found Montgomery Blinn for a quick chat. In an instance like this, uh, which was initially charged as a murder, do you feel like you have ceded power in any way? I feel more powerful. I feel that I got to I got to be a person, not just a lawyer. I have tried, I counted up recently, uh, more than 30 felony jury trials, 10 homicide trials that have ended all with a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. It's really hard to do that. And every single one of those cases sits in my heart. Um, and they should. They should for prosecutors. But this case sits in my heart in a really different way because I think we did something better that I hope is the beginning. I hope this is the snowball rolling down the hill. That snowball Montgomery Blinn talks about is extremely small at the moment. 
There are other places in America using restorative justice in the same way as Durham. But it's a limited number, and the volume of cases is still a tiny fraction. This is a time-consuming and resource-intensive form of justice. Last year, Restorative Justice Durham resolved 35 cases in the city. That's up from 12 the year before. But the DAs say at this stage, it's not really about numbers. It's about setting precedents. And the Fields case is just that. This case is extraordinary because it's a homicide. But it's also relied on the forgiveness of family members. So, is the outcome here even replicable? I think it lends itself well to people who know each other, not just families. You know, that's one of the things that we know as prosecutors is that people, especially in cases of violence, have long-term connections with each other somehow, whether they're family members or they are members of the same community, same neighborhood. But is there a limit to the severity of cases that restorative justice process can handle? A lot of places that do it say, you know, no sexual assault, no domestic violence, no violence, whatever it is, they have rules. We have purposely, Satana said, we're not going to have those rules. Each case should get its own independent evaluation. So my job is to continue to find a new case that doesn't look like restorative justice from the outset. There's nothing that is automatically off limits. And of course, this case was resolved as America is plunged even further into division, where violent crime continues to be weaponized by politicians. What's the risk here for reformists like Satana DeBerry? Even when we're making a decision that's risky, we say, is this the right thing to do? And if it's the right thing to do, we try to do it irrespective of the politics. Um, is now still a good time to talk? Um, yes, I might as well be. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I gave Alex a final call to catch up. Don Jr. was now free. I'm, I'm still doing good. I'm, I'm, I'm still joyous. Uh, Alex wasn't his chirpy self. His mother had died recently, age 99, and he'd been in hospital too. I wanted to know how the family was feeling since Don Jr.'s release. Um, If my other siblings, three siblings, don't want to have anything to do with them, that's fine too. And is that still the case? Has anybody changed their mind or anything like that? No. So, wow, God, so so there's still, it's still sort of a bit of a dividing line in, in, in the family. Yes. And Alex, one of the things that I don't think I ever asked you was obviously, you know, for a lot of people who go through this process, the main question that they have for the person who perpetrated the harm was why they did it. And I just wonder if you ever asked that question and whether you'd be comfortable sharing what answer you got. I did ask that question. And... The answer was simple. He wasn't ready to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so until he's ready to talk about it, I don't even ask him any questions about it anymore. And that's what I told him. I said, when you're ready to talk about it, I'll come over, we'll sit down, and we'll talk about it. You talk, and I will listen. Mm-hmm. You think that you'll get that answer, but you're happy to wait? Yes. I'm happy to wait. And I think the answer will come probably when I least expect it. It's not something that I can pressure him. 
into giving me the answer because I think that would push him further away. And I'm not trying to push him away. I'm trying to bring him back into his family. And so as far as restorative justice, I hope I can do some more with restorative justice because if I can just change one person's mind about how they feel about someone being lost, I certainly would find um, great gratitude in knowing that I've helped at least one family member decide that they are going to give their loved one an opportunity to have a productive life. Thank you again so, so much. I'm, I'm grateful, and for that, I thank you. My thanks to the Fields family, to Restorative Justice Durham, to the Jubilee Home, and the Durham DA's office. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Additional production and recordings by Emily Krumberger. Sound design was by Solomon King, and the executive producer was Homer Halili. And it was presented by me, Oliver Lockland. If you'd like to read my long-form piece on this story, with beautiful photos of all the voices you heard by Durham-based photographer Cornell Watson, you can find it on theguardian.com. Today in Focus, we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.